I would say the biggest takeaway out of earnings this quarter was uncertainty. There's just a lot of uncertainty among pretty much all, all asset classes. And a lot of this is on pricing because we've seen a huge change in the interest rate environment over the last couple of months. If you look at the forward curve, it's not really coming down as steeply as uh, as it did a couple of months ago. And so in, in that environment where interest rates are higher for longer, we don't know what the values of some of these companies are. The third quarter for the real estate investment trusts brought more uncertainty than less. The office landlords reported missing occupancy goals as share prices continue to drop and industrial and multifamily owners are facing fewer immediate challenges, but are still at the mercy of rates and supply demand issues. I'm Miriam Hall. This is BizNow Reports, and my guest today is John Kim, a BMO Capital Markets senior analyst covering US REITs. He says it's not a great time to be a REIT analyst or a REIT executive. And I asked him what's making things so tough. Well, we've gone through the last 13 or 14 years where rates were coming down. We had a prolonged period of a Goldilocks economy where the economy was humming along very well, but rates were relatively benign. And now we're in this uncertain environment where interest rates are going up pretty significantly, at least relative to the last 13 or 14 years. Um, and fundamentals are, are weakening. And so everything that's been great and rosy over the last decade or so, it's, it's reversed. It's just a lot more challenging. So everything that was good is now bad, basically. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but then the fortunate thing is the companies are in great position. The balance sheets are a lot better. The, the operating leverage of the companies has really um, improved for many of the large cap companies in particular. And I would say the management teams are for the most part, excellent, and a lot more diverse, and I would say sophisticated in the financial markets and property markets. So the, co- the companies are well positioned for this, but now we're heading through, towards rough waters. So when you say they're well positioned, you mean as opposed to the great financial crisis? Yes. Compared to the great financial crisis, there were companies at the time who were very much um, operating under the private real estate model, where um, <clears throat> leverage was okay. Um, I know at the time a lot of investors um, were okay with it and actually pushing for more leverage because that's how real estate has operated in the past. And it's no longer really accepted in, in public REIT world. So let's look back at some of the big office owners in the last quarter. So SL Green has said it won't meet its office occupancy goal this year. Venado's occupancy was just over 91%, which is down a bit from last year. What do you make of those numbers when most of the commentary over the last year from the CEOs is about how the return to office is stabilising? It's not a real huge surprise, to be honest with you, because when you look at the overall um, vacancy rate in New York, it's much larger than what the companies report. And part of it is the companies are taking out some of the assets that are under redevelopment. But we're going through, at the very least, a lot of companies just downsizing because of the slowing economy. And a lot of them expanded a lot. And then at the same time, because of the return to office has been very slow, they're just uncertain about their need for office for all job functions. There are certain job functions, especially client-facing, that are almost fully back. And I would say New York is the best office market within the U.S. on that metric. But there are many functions that are not really necessary for people to be in all the time, or if at all. So it's just this double whammy of uh, a tough economic environment and leases coming up and some companies deciding or are uncertain with what their office needs are. 
I'm constantly seeing like a real disconnect, right, between what the, the CEOs are saying, what Steve Roth will say or what Mark Halliday will say, um, compared to the numbers. They keep talking about how great office is and how much faith there is in office, but the numbers don't reflect that. Well, I, I think it's a lot of it is this bifurcation, uh, which I think is very real. So when you look at one Vanderbilt, if you're Mark Holiday, you're very confident that one Vanderbilt is an excellent asset. It's getting pretty much the highest rents in the city. If they were to re-rent that asset today, it would be even higher. And it's near full occupancy. So can they replicate that at one Madison? I would say that's very much the case. Can they replicate it across all their assets? I think that's going to be difficult. But among the, the really top assets within the city, which is probably the top I don't know, 30 to 40%. It depends on how much capital is being spent on these assets to fully amenitize them. You're going to get amazing rents and, uh, and great results. But that bottom 30%, uh, that's the challenging part. And some of these companies own assets that are maybe not at that bottom 30%, but either there or pretty close to it, where it's very commoditized assets. And it would take a lot of CapEx to make it more competitive. And they probably don't want to do that. So they're just really focusing on their best assets and saying, look, this gives us confidence that we could do this across most of our portfolio. And that's why they exude confidence. The, the only point I was going to make is that just looking at the Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy filing for WeWork, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, I would say mo there were so many leases in New York and it's an astounding number, basically, that were listed that they're abandoning and rejecting. And I'd say a lot of them are in the BNC buildings. That's just another painful kind of blow to the market this week. Yeah, I mean, but I would say even when WeWork was the largest tenant within the office, the, the New York landlords, for the most part, I, there's probably one exception to that, they didn't really want to embrace them that much. It was just that they're the biggest tenant in the market. How can we not at least, um, you know, think about signing them in our buildings and in particularly the lower floors where there probably wasn't going to be a lot of demand or at, at lower rents? So there was a reluctance to sign WeWork and other co-working firms. They finally, most of them finally did it. The exception to that was on one end of the spectrum, Empire State Realty, which Tony Malcolm, to his credit, said, we're not going to sign WeWork. We don't think that they're going to be a credible tenant going forward. And people criticized him at the time for it. I think I was one of those people. At the other end of the spectrum was Boston Properties, or BXP. They had a, a long-standing history with WeWork. I think Martin Zuckerman was one of the initial investors in the company. And so they embraced WeWork um, a little bit ahead of their peers, but still in a responsible way. It wasn't you know, any more than 2% of revenue. Yeah, I remember when uh, Tony Malcolm was speaking so publicly against WeWork when it was in sort of the height of the WeWork craze. I, I remember thinking he's either really right or really wrong. And it turned mm -hmm. out that he was right. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it's easy for us on the sell side or maybe on the buy side as well to say, hey, look, this is the hot thing now. Take it while you have it. But when you sign a 10 to 15 year lease, it's not so easy to get out of it. And so with the benefit of hindsight, we've got to give him credit for pushing back on the WeWork craze. If we talk about Venado for a moment, their, their funds from operations in the third quarter, which is generally considered a key indicator of a REIT's performance, was about $119 million, which was down from approximately $152 million um, from last year. And Steve Roth said that in this environment, retaining cash, preserving the balance sheet is the top priority. What do you think that kind of comment tells us about how things are going to look for these office REITs going into 24? I mean, the biggest risk for um, a lot of these companies is refinancing. 
because at the end of the day, the banks don't want to extend more capital to commercial real estate. And there are some loans that are due over the next couple of years where in order to refinance it, uh, it would have to be at a lower value and or the owner will have to put more capital to extend the financing. And so preserving cash to do that, I think, is the top priority. And that's why we saw them suspend their dividend. They're not the only office read that has done that. But um, I think that's a responsible responsible action, just given a lot of this is a little bit out of their hands, but they're working very diligently with their partners, in this case, the lenders, to extend debt maturities. Where do you think the bottom is for a lot of these companies' stock prices? I mean, how do you evaluate REIT stock prices compared to where the market values them? Well, th- this is the thing. I mean, the, the I would say the biggest takeaway out of earnings this quarter was uncertainty. There's just a lot of uncertainty among pretty much all, all asset classes. And a lot of this is on pricing because we've seen a huge change in the interest rate environment over the last couple of months. Um, if you look at the forward curve, it's not really coming down as steeply as, uh, as it did a couple of months ago. And so in, in that environment where interest rates are higher for longer, we don't know what the, the values of some of these, uh, some of these companies are. There, there's two items here. One is the, where interest rates are going and the other is the state of the economy. So once we get more clarity on the impact of all this interest rate movements that the Fed's been doing, the impact that's been going to have on the economy, on consumers, and eventually when interest rates level out, I think that's when you'll see the stock's bottom or anticipation of that happening. It feels like it's been this this fog that we keep thinking is going to clear, but it just never seems to clear. I mean, I feel like we've been talking about once we get clarity, X or Y, Z will happen, but we never seem to get clarity. Well, I mean, the good thing about it is everyone's been talking about it. During the GFC, it was a surprise for the most part. I mean, it, it was hovering for a while, but just to see the fallout of the housing market and the unemployment rate shooting up above 10%, I mean, it happened so fast. And then a lot of these companies were caught off guard with the amount of debt they had outstanding. And this time around, because GFC is still in everyone's back of their minds, we've been talking about a recession for at least in the last 12 months or so. It's not going to come as a huge surprise. But is, it is this lingering overhang, as you mentioned, that we're all anticipating it's going to happen and eventually it seems like it will. So you're not calling the bottom yet for these, for these prices? Not yet. Not yet. I think, that, I think the stocks will be pretty volatile. But again, what may change that is if rates continue to come down because they have been trimmed down over the last couple of weeks. Uh, just some crazy numbers for you. I mean, office REITs lost 38% of their value and they're down another 25% this year so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think with, with with the change in office usage, do you think it's fair to question whether these REITs will ever recover their former values? Ever is a long, is a word that I'm hesitant to agree with, but it, it's probably going to take a long time. Okay. But he, here's the, here's the positive spin on what's happening now with interest rates and also the financing environments and inflation is that it's, very difficult to develop mm. uh, across all asset types. And that could be the case for office as well, where rates are coming, so rates are going up, development um, completions are coming down. At the same time, the demand is coming down, but 
if and when demand starts picking up again, the economy picks up, there's going to be, you know, companies expanding again, that's going to be entering a period and, and coordinated with very little to no new supply. Mm. So then rents could really move up significantly. And, um, and then you'll see the stock prices uh, react to that. So I'm not saying that's going to happen in the next year or two, but when you say ever, it's you know, I, reasonably this could happen within the next five years. There are some startling figures out there about the, the slowdown in development. I mean, people have really pumped the brakes when it comes to building office. Just even in the last five years, I mean, I remember in 2018, we we're talking about enormous amounts of supply coming online. And it's just really tapering out, which, as you say, could definitely uh, change things. Only a few REITs like Boston Properties and Venado with its Times Square retail portfolio seem to be actively, though, writing down their property valuations. Do you think we'll see more of that perhaps in the in the coming year? Almost unquestionably, because a lot of the assets being written down are through joint ventures. So a lot of their partners require uh, an assessment of the asset value. And at that point, you would make that decision to to write it down. Or if there's anticipation of selling mm. it, the asset, then again, you're, you're assessing where you could sell it at and some companies might write it, write it down ahead of, it, ahead of them or uh, coordinate it with the sale. So yeah, I'm, we do expect more write downs to occur. If we look at the other end of the equation, the industrial market, I mean, obviously that asset class is in a very different fundamental position. But if you look at Prologis, uh, for example, they saw record rent growth in Q3. Uh, they beat analyst estimates. Um, but how long do you think this could go on for, considering economic headwinds that the sector is facing too? They're in a very unique position, and I would say this about industrial overall, is that there's been so much rent growth over the last few years that the embedded uh, rental growth when you mark to market the portfolio is still above 60% for Prologis. And it's well into the uh, double digits for uh, the entire industrial REIT sector. So that embedded growth is there. But the way the stocks are moving now is in anticipation of market rental growth slowing. So we've all known for the last couple of years that the mark to market embedded rent growth is visible for the next two to three years. But that uh, mark-to-market could significantly fall if market rents decline um, as well this year, next year. And that's how, that's how the stocks are moving. So the good news is I think is already known and priced in. What's not really quite known yet is how quickly market rents could, could fall. Yeah, I mean, there's also a supply and demand issue going on. I was just reading that there was about 162 million square feet of new industrial product delivered in Q3, but absorption was at like 90 million square feet, which is actually the lowest it's been since 2015. So do you think there is weakness in the sector that people aren't talking about yet? Uh, I would say there's just uncertainty. And then what Prologis had mentioned mm -hmm. on their call, and I I credit them for being honest about it. Is they feel over the next three quarters, yeah. demand is going to exceed. Or sorry, sorry, supply is going to exceed demand. Three quarters is a long time. I mean, we're looking at now the second half of twenty-four, and I would say before this quarter started, we were all joking that every company and broker you talked to were saying, "Oh, we'll see a, a recovery second half of next year." When we heard that's going to happen in industrial, mm -hmm. it's like, "Well, this is one of the best asset classes out there fundamentally." And now, the leader in the space is saying. Um, the demand picture will really start to improve in the second half of next year. So if they're saying that, then 
every other asset class is probably more towards 25. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's the that was the I think the um, surprise this quarter um, from Prologis, and so I think people kind of know that demand is slowing. They the, the largest company in the space that has acknowledged that's the case. So people are acknowledging and people are building mm-hmm. that into the product. But what we said about before about supply, I mean, the supply for industrial mm-hmm. is going to drop significantly over the next two years. It basically drops by half every year over the next two years. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, the, the reason why we see that in industrial is because that delivery time for development is much quicker than it is for offers or retail or multifamily. So if development starts to slow down significantly, we're going to see it within the next 12 to 24 months. Um, and so they, they'll be the first one to benefit from from development starts really coming down to a halt. I want to touch on multifamily. Rents nationally have started to decline from the record highs, and there is you know rumblings that multifamily distress could outpace office distress before mm-hmm. too long. Um, how has that dynamic played out among the publicly traded apartment owners? It's played out uh, in... In their stock prices. I mean, the multifamily REITs are down, mm. um, it's, it's down about 10% this year, despite very strong FFO growth and organic growth this year. But we're seeing now slowing rental growth. We're seeing rent acceleration occur quicker than anticipated. But also this cloud hanging over as to what asset values are, because a lot of the assets in the space were acquired at three and a half to 4% cap rates. And now if we're looking at debt cost today in the five and a half to six and a half percent range, then it only makes sense for cap rates to be above that. Everyone's saying that negative leverage is not being accepted today. So it's it's reflected in the stock prices in the sense that we estimate the implied cap rate today for multifamily six and a half percent. So the public market's already there. Um, but if we start to see transaction activity occur north of six and a half, which may happen with these distressed owners, then then the multifamily REITs will um, will see it in the share prices. I have seen you say that 25 looks uh, looks like a better year for real estate and the saying stay alive to 25, you know, heaven in 27 is something I have heard a lot. Is that true though for office REITs? I mean, if you want to invest in REIT stocks, does that mean wait to invest until 25 or get in now when the prices are low? I wish there was something that... Catchy that rhymes with six. I'm sure they're, we can think of something now. Oh, um, you're pushing it out to six. <laughs> maybe. Well, I mean, it, it, just looking at the forward curve, well, the reason why we thought staying live to 25 made sense is the forward curve was showing that by the end of 24, rates will come down significantly. And now I'd say the forward curve is saying, you know, a modest decrease or maybe up to 100 basis points, which is fine. But before the, uh, the forward curve drop was, was steeper, and then when we're looking at the economic environment, if we're going to a recession, many are saying we are in a business recession today, and that happens over the next 12 months, but we're looking at 25 when companies are starting to expand again, then 25 theoretically is a good time. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, and if investors could see that, the stocks are moving in anticipation of that happening. So 25 is the time to buy, is that right? Or 24 is the time to buy? If, if I would say it would be ahead of the fundamentals actually changing. So okay. if, if there was visibility that 25 is going to be a recovery year, then the stocks will move ahead of that in 24. 
Okay, I've got the saying for you. Stay alive to 25, but 26 is in the mix. I like that. <laughs> you should trademark it. <laughs> Don't steal it. <laughs> Put it on a T-shirt. The Sunbelt was like the most, the hottest thing out uh, through the pandemic. Do you still favor it um, considering, you know, people are being called back to work in the cities and and there is a lot of like pressure on those markets? I would say today, no. I mean, especially multifamily. Mm-hmm. You look at multifamily, the coastal markets um, have been much stronger. Certainly New York has been the strongest multifamily market um, really in the last 12 to 18 months. And then when you look at supply, there's just so much supply occurring in the settlement markets and multifamily. We're estimating the major settlement markets will have 4% new supply annually this year, next year, whereas coastal markets will have about 1.7% annually this year and next year. So the big difference in the supply delivery. Now, I think what's happened really over the, the last 10 years, but during COVID is we all understood that there's a lot of attractiveness attractive characteristics of living in the sunbelt markets and being in low income tax states like Texas and Florida. So that net migration trend will continue, but um, the coastal markets are resilient. There's a lot of people who want to live in these markets, especially uh, younger workforce. And that supply dynamic is usually pretty sustainable. Usually there's a lot more supply occurring in these higher growth sunbelt markets than there is in coastal. So you still think it's a good market? You still you still think there's room to grow there? There's room to grow there, but it, like you mentioned in your questions, like Sunbelt was the hot place to go, uh, especially 2020 and 21. And, um, and I, I would say that that has reversed. Mm. Uh, not that net, net migration trends have reversed, but that the fundamentals have reversed because now there's just so much capital and so much supply occurring in these summer. Yeah, I think like sort of halfway through last year, people started to say it was just completely overbuilt and there was just way too, people got, just got way too excited about it. That's the case, but there is still a lot of excitement to move into yeah. these markets. Um, I remember coming out of college, like the only places a lot of my friends and I want to live were New York, LA, San Francisco. Yeah. That was it. There was no other choice. Now there's so many choices. People would want to live Austin, Denver, Miami, Nashville. There's so many great places. Um, a lot of them in Sunbelt markets. So there's lots of choice out mm. there, but there, there's also a lot of supply in those markets. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it's funny how people, you know, people it, don't bet against New York. People always say that, obviously, and, and, and it is, you know, the mm-hmm. greatest city in the world, but it is difficult to live there and incredibly expensive. Yes. <laughs> and it's funny how quickly <laughs> things change. It's true, but there, it's the the younger workforce. Mm-hmm. I mean, people love, especially, it was so trendy to bag New York, but coming out of COVID, that's where most younger people want to live. That's where you want to really start your career or mm. build up your, uh, move up in the corporate world or whatever um, career people have. And there's no better place to do it. And there's so many opportunities here that it's, it's hard to replicate change overnight. That's John Kim, BMO Capital Markets Senior Analyst. Right now on the website, I've written a story about leadership shakeups at New York real estate companies um, and what that means for succession planning. Uh, we also have a story about uh, veterans working in commercial real estate. There are more stories in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.